Greetings, everybody. My name is Jean Bajalan, and welcome to This is Revolution. I am standing in for Jason Miles tonight, who is extremely busy. Why is Jason busy? Well, he is preparing for the LA live show, which will be this Sunday uh, in uh, Telegram Ballroom in Los Angeles. There is information about tickets to the event, and, you know, Jason is hoping that many of you will be there to see all the wonderful guests that we have, including C. Derek Vaughn, the Left Reckoning Boys, Ben Burgess, Deep State Cuba, and a whole load of other people. So hopefully we will be seeing some of you there. Well, you won't be seeing me because I won't be there. And you won't be seeing Pascal because he won't be there. But you will get to see Jason and Cuba. So well worth a trip if you can. Um, another important thing, if you have the time, please consider liking and subscribing to our channel. Everything you do with the liking, subscribing, hitting the bell helps the channel grow, helps us develop, and helps us keep bringing the content that you all apparently like to you. Uh, and well, one of the guests on Sunday will be Daniel Besner. And tonight we have a special guest. Daniel Besner is the host of American Prestige podcast. And we'll be talking to his co-host, or maybe he's Daniel Besner's co-host, uh, or Daniel Besner is his co-host. I don't know who's the sidekick in the relationship, but one of them is the sidekick. And we have David Davidson today, who is the other half of American Prestige to talk about American foreign policy. But of course, it is not just boring old me here today. Um, we have, of course, the other half of This Is Revolution, the more handsome half, the more intellectual half, the half who was on Deutsche Welle today talking about the crisis in Haiti. It is the one, the only, Pascal Robert. Hi, Pascal. How are you doing? Peace and greetings to the chat, the audience, and to you, Gene Bajlan. Thank you for having, for not for having me on, but for that wonderful introduction. Yes, I was on Deutsche World talking about Haiti and what's going on there. If you can check that out, probably on PBS tonight. Uh, as a matter of fact, also uh, you also to announce that Jason should be on Majority Report this Friday. As a oh, is it this Friday? Is that in the fun half? Correct. So you guys should be able to check Jason out there. Uh, I'm thinking about doing a special with uh, Paul McComb and another friend uh, of uh, mine on the Haiti situation. Let me know in the chat if you guys would be interested in having, that might be a Mau Mau. That actually might be a, the last Mau Mau of this month. Might that sounds like on, a great idea. That might be on the situation in Haiti. And I might invite Paul McComb with uh, <laughs> another guest as well to do that. So uh, let us know in the comments if you'd be interested in a uh, the Mama Hour being dedicated to the to the affair going on in Haiti right now. Yeah, I think that would be definitely an interesting topic to uh, cover. You know, a lot of news coming out of Haiti at the moment, and of course, you and your coterie of uh, Haitian experts will probably provide fantastic coverage for everybody so sh everybody message pascal on twitter and tell him he needs to do a special mau mau hour on 
uh, Haiti. But with that said, as I mentioned at the top, we have a fantastic guest today. We have Derek Davidson from the American Prestige podcast. We have He is Daniel Bessner's sidekick. He is here to talk foreign policy. We're going to cover a lot of topics today, but we wanted to start off talking about Saudi Arabia and oil, which is an important news story. Uh, but I feel, Pascal, um, it's kind of going under the radar with a lot of other things happening in the world. What are your thoughts? I think that one of the most fascinating things about the Biden presidency is the churn of events around the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia that no one is talking about out loud. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. So to help elucidate this situation... Here is Derek Davidson. Hey, Derek, welcome to This Is hey, Revolution. Guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for agreeing to come on. Well, let, before we begin, who would you say is the sidekick, you or Daniel? Like, which superheroes would you, since I, I everything... Think we're, I think we're kind of a, a, a switch, actually. Sometimes he, you know, he's more the sidekick, sometimes I'm more the sidekick. We go back and forth. Oh, uh, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty equitable in my opinion it's a pretty uh, equitable division of uh, of uh, I don't know what you want to call it labor I guess Le brains and beauty whose brains and whose beauty <laughs> well there we go that's maybe on too most much of those I mean okay. that's clear fair enough well <laughs> let's get right to brass tacks today let's 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 you know hit the nail on the head and uh, you know start on our topic we wanted to talk to you of course. Because American Prestige, you know, and your newsletter, Foreign Policy Exchanges, you know, they cover a lot of issues related to American foreign policy. From a perspective, I would say, and I think you might agree with me on this, is not the Beltway insider approach to foreign policy. But at the same time, it is not the kind of uh, inverted American exceptionalism, anti-imperialism that we see on the left. Instead, it's a kind of more nuanced realism uh kind of realistic look at foreign policy warts and all and one of the issues as we said at the top here was um saudi arabia the relationship between the united states and saudi arabia and particularly uh the tug of war taking place over oil production and you know saudi arabia apparently standing up quote unquote to america which wants to see an increase in oil production can you talk to this uh, situation in a general sense. What is going on with American-Saudi relations? So, um, I mean, this goes back to um, the decision by OPEC Plus, which is a, a block. I mean, people are familiar, I assume, with with OPEC, uh, world's major oil producers, or you know, sort of cartel to control prices. Uh, it's been that way for decades now. Um, in recent years, they've put together this uh, more expanded block called OPEC Plus that that is mostly OPEC plus Russia, but there are a couple of other kind of uh, uh, oil producers in there as well. Um, the decision that that they made as a unit uh, during or fairly soon after the onset of COVID, um, not quite at the beginning. It was after a little bit of misstep, I think, on on the Saudis' part. But they they made the decision to drastically cut oil production, uh, recognizing that everybody's economy was shutting down. We we're going into uh, you know some uncharted territory uh, with uh, COVID. I you know I, I hesitate to say the pandemic 
is ending or decreasing in any way. I mean, it's still uh, very much there, but governments making the decision basically to come out of lockdowns uh, to try and re you know get back to something approaching normal economic activity. Uh, there's been pressure from the United States, from other uh, countries that are you know looking at global oil prices, at global energy prices. Uh, would like to see them come down. There's been some pressure on the block to uh, re, you know, get back to pre-COVID levels uh, as quickly as possible. Um, it, OPEC Plus is instead for, you know, a couple of, you know, about a year, maybe a year and a half now, uh, had been taking a very slow approach uh, to kind of every month adding a little bit more capacity back, a little bit more capacity back. Uh, but being very cautious not to flood the market. There was a you know concern uh, about flooding the market, crashing prices again, and none of the, the oil producers in that block wanted that. Uh, what's happened over the last couple of months is that OPEC plus has made what the Saudis insist and what the bloc insists uh, is an economic decision, fearing that uh, we're on the brink of a global recession um, you know, that uh, things are taking a downturn, that oil demand may, may take a downturn. Uh, they've made the decision to cut production again, to stop this kind of steady, slow but steady increase. Uh, so last month, they cut production by about 100,000 barrels per day. month. Earlier this month, uh, they cut uh, production by a collective 2 million barrels per day moving forward, starting in November and moving forward. The Biden administration, through all of this, kind of staring the midterm elections uh, in the face, uh, worrying about $5 a gallon gasoline and up, uh, has been trying to push the Saudis to, uh, because the Saudis are really, you know, along with Russia, one of the two uh, most influential players, trying to push them, uh, and, and the only one that really has additional capacity, I should say, to, to kind of bring to market. Uh, but they've been pushing the Saudis to to expand production more quickly. Uh, and now this cut, you know, runs completely counter to what the Biden administration wanted. Uh, the war in Ukraine adds a whole nother dimension to this because it's, you know, sort of viewed as a gift to the Russians to keep oil prices high uh, so that Russian, you know, oil sales, will, oil revenue will continue to be high, even with the Russians selling a lot of their oil at a discount. If the price, if the overall price is high, they can still make a fair amount of money on that. Uh, so that that compounds this kind of request for the Saudis to, um, you know, take it easy to, to bring the oil production back on so we can get cheaper gas. Uh, now it's also, you know, this uh, you're with us or against us mentality with the Ukraine war. You're either uh, going to do what we want and, and uh, you know, bring more oil back on market. or you are going to cut uh, and help the Russians? And, and we can't abide that. So that's that's basically the, the framing here for what's um, what's going on. Well, Derek, you know, that's really interesting to get to the brass tacks in terms of the immediate cause of what's happening with oil, with the uh, with the oil prices. But what's more interesting to me is the overall history of what between the between the fall of the Trump administration and the incoming of the Biden administration has seemed to be a complete and total utter change in the nature of the relationship between the United States and the House of Saud or Saudi Arabia, if you will. Now, a lot of this, some have speculated, has to do with the relationship with the United States and Saudi Arabia in terms of the Yemeni conflict, whether or not the United States is whether or not to you know, be supporting the Saudis with a proxy war in Yemen by sending them military weaponry. 
a lot of people are also saying that what is what is the role of the Gamal Khashoggi? Khashoggi, the, the known uh, a journalist that was basically alleged by some to have been assassinated by the leader of the House of Saud right now, the current president who was considered the current leader or king, if you will, who was considered to be a reformer. So all of these various kind of machinations, if you will, how is this playing out in terms of how Biden is dealing with the Saudi royal family? So yeah, there's I mean there's a lot that's been the the, the king himself. I mean there's a lot that's been going on in this relationship, and you can go all the way back to the Saudi intervention in Yemen in in 2015, which happened around the same time that the U.S. was negotiating uh, the nuclear deal with Iran, uh, which has since been scrapped. Um, the, the Obama administration at the time, I think, made the calculation that if they helped the Saudis, uh, they helped support the Saudi uh, war effort in Yemen, uh, that it would sort of ease the sting of the U.S. engaging in negotiations with Iran and lifting sanctions on Iran, which is what was, you know, what happened as part of that deal. Uh, the Trump administration that came into office and Donald Trump, for whatever reason, was enthralled uh, to the Saudis, just loved Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the crown prince, loved the whole family. It was his first overseas trip, and they, you know, he danced around with the sword and all that nonsense. Um, and and he, of course, in 2018, scrapped the nuclear deal and drastically ratcheted up U.S. support for the war in Yemen. So that's all uh, been going on here, and and you know, kind of uh, politically in the United States, the Saudi relationship because Trump was so tight with them. Uh, I think took on a, a more partisan characteristic than it had previously. Uh, so then you had Biden, uh, and of course, as you as you mentioned, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in in 2018 woke a lot of people up who were kind of sleepwalking through, I think, the Yemen war. But you know, a lot of columnists and uh, you know reporters and journalists at major outlets who knew Khashoggi and and you know certainly knew of him uh, how, since he was a columnist for the Washington Post, kind of woke up to this idea that you know maybe this. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman guy isn't so great. The U.S. intelligence community has concluded uh, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman ordered that assassination, that, that he, he ordered them to murder uh, Khashoggi and the, the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Uh, so that really affected you know, a lot of public opinion. Then you have Biden uh, running in the 2020 campaign talking about uh, you know, kind of repudiating Trump's relationship with the Saudis, talking about uh, how he was going to hold them accountable. He was going to make Mohammed bin Salman a pariah. He was going to make the whole Saudi state a pariah. Uh, came into office and did none of that. Uh, instead, you know, we went through a year plus of the Biden administration, um, you know, not really breaking all that significantly with the Trump administration's foreign policy in the Middle East, uh, and instead uh, trying to convince the Saudis that, you know, hey, I mean, you know, we're not Trump, we're not going to be your best friend, but we're still the United States. Nothing's fundamentally changed about this relationship. That culminated uh, earlier this year, and I think July, it was July, I think, uh, when Biden visited Saudi Arabia, he had his famous fist bump with the crown prince. Um, and that tr a whole trip was about kind of reassuring uh, the Saudis, the UAE, Israel, that, that the U.S. was still maintaining uh, the same foreign policy that it always had been. Um, that whole process and the, the fact that he sort of, uh, I mean, I think at this point maybe humiliated himself would not be you know, overstating it uh, by going over there and kind of paying fealty to the, the Saudis only to have them now uh, you know, undertake this, this 
significant oil cut at a time when the United States really, or the Biden administration and, and Democrats really don't want to see that happen, uh, is is maybe adding to the sense of bitterness here. Like, you know, look at what we we put out for you guys, and you're uh, this is how you repay us. I think that's that that plays into a lot of these uh, bad feelings that you're seeing from Washington. I think this is an extremely important point to emphasize when we talk about American foreign policy. Very rarely do we see major titanic shifts between uh, administrations. You know, usually there is some level of continuity, uh, even with Donald Trump, who did some things that the foreign policy establishment found extremely reckless, notably pulling out of the Iran deal. Um, You know, even he was a continuation of foreign policy because at the end of the day, the people executing on foreign policy, they're the same set of people who work for other Republican administrations. They're drawing on the same pool. But it strikes me that Joe Biden has, in a sense, got the worst of both worlds, in the sense that he has made a lot of rhetorical moves against Saudi Arabia. He's talked a big game against Saudi Arabia. But once he assumed power, you know, the momentum of the American foreign policy establishment, all the different tentacles and relationships that exist uh, on so many different levels between the United States and Saudi Arabia, they've all remained largely intact, largely functioning in the same ways that they've done before, except Joe Biden has shouted a lot of stuff about uh, um, MBS uh, and has alienated the Saudis. And in a kind of personalized regime like that, That matters when you have uh, a significant degree of political power in the hands of of one man and one elite whose personal disposition towards you can lead to important policy shifts. So, you know, with that in mind, would you say then that this refusal to uh, increase oil production at the behest of the United States is a direct result of that? You know, OPEC is saying it's an economic move, but would you say it's an economic move? Or do you think this is the Saudis, as they do periodically, you know, Saudi Arabia is often called a client state of the United States or something like that. But, you know, sometimes the the tail wags the dog and, and, you know, these important client states, whether it's uh, Saudi Arabia, whether it's Israel, whether it's Turkey, all these states have an ability, uh, you know, the relationship is two ways. They have an ability to mess with the United States. <laughs> so would you say this is a political move? Is this is this an attempt to get the Democrats out of office to have a more favorable Republican administration? So, I mean, there's a there's a few things going on here. And I think one is uh, you're, you're right to, to note that uh, there's been a lot of rhetoric. Or there was a lot of rhetoric from the Biden campaign that did not play out. Uh, it has not played out in the Biden presidency. I think the best example of that is not um the saudis directly but it has to do with with iran and and restoring the nuclear deal which could have been done on day one but the biden administration has pretty much frittered that away um but i think there's a couple of things going on with respect to the saudis one is it is a personalized regime but it's gotten even more personalized i mean mbs has sidelined 
cousins. He's sidelined, you know, anybody who could be perceived as a potential rival. He's really, even within that system, kind of distilled things down to a a, a very kind of one man, one one rule type of uh, relationship in a way that, uh, you know, it's 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 there's been more input from the other parts of the family in the past and in, in the way that Saudi uh, does things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think. Um, how do I want to put this? Um, it is uh, there is I'm I'm certain a, a level of uh, offense that MBS has taken to the things that Joe Biden said on the campaign trail, to the treatment that he's gotten, uh, that he got after the, the Hashoji killing, that that where he was sort of shunned for a while before uh, he kind of you know he was a little bit welcomed back in. I also think that that this is. Um, partly a function of the fact that the United States is no longer uh, the only player in town when it comes to kind of great power competition in the Middle East. China is also there as another potential patron. Um, and even Russia, although it is not economically speaking a great power, when it comes to oil, I mean, the Saudis, the Saudis went through an oil price war with the Russians, uh, you know, back, uh, uh, you know, maybe at this point, a decade ago or so, uh, and it didn't go well. And and I think they they, they recognize that they, they don't want to do that again. It, it really, I mean, it caused them, they flooded the market and uh, dropped prices drastically, and, and uh, they don't want to do that again. That was not a good time for them. Um, so, uh, you know, I know there's been reporting in uh, The Intercept, for example, about this being you know, really just a direct attack on Biden, an effort to get Republicans into Congress and uh, you know, kind of shift the politics in Washington. I, I I wouldn't say that's out of the question, although I'm not sure um, that that this is the kind of this is the thing that, that keeps MBS up at night. You know, who, who which party is in control of the uh, the U.S. Congress? I definitely think there's a political angle to this, which is sort of testing the boundaries of the U.S. Saudi relationship and questioning whether. Um, you know, for the Saudis, it makes sense to do what the Biden administration wants when they have these other interests that involve these other powers. Um, so I, I think that does reflect some political sensibility. In terms of the economics, the explanation that they've offered, the explanation that the Saudis have offered and that OPEC Plus has offered hasn't isn't entirely um, credible to me because it's not, there is no indication at this point that the oil market is slackening. The prices had come down from like $120 a barrel, uh, you know, when they spiked after the after Russia invaded Ukraine. They've come down to like $80, $90 a barrel, which is lower certainly, but it's a fairly normal uh, range for oil prices the last few years, and certainly something the Saudis have been able to live with for a while now. So I I, I don't see any indication that they needed economically to make this cut to stave off some kind of uh, crash in oil prices. And, and you know, you can always, OPEC plus meets once a month to decide what their output is going to be moving forward. Y you know, if, if prices crash today, they could, you know, just decide in two weeks to, to cut production. So there's not like there would be this huge lag time for them uh, in terms of, you know, a glut of oil on the market. So it, it's not, uh, not a, not entirely the economic explanation seems like a cover uh, to some degree, for the the political. So, if if the economics is a cover for for the political, is it safe to say that perhaps even though the Saudis may not be necessarily interested in full out and out regime change, 
in the in the uh, eyes of the Democratic Party under the stewardship of Joe Biden that they are interested in putting pressure on the regime to basically say like get off our lawn, Joe, and stop trying to bark orders at us about how we deal with the situation in either Yemen or our oil prices and dictating to us how we deal with the Chinese or the Russians. Is that possibly the play they're trying to make here? And in terms of the long-term history, there has, in terms of back in the good old days before the war on terror, there was the perception that the Republicans were more amenable to dealing with the Saudis than the Democrats. There was a kind of, like, you know, the, the perception with the, the, the Bush administration and, and all of that, that they had, they were more, the Republican Party was a party of the oil interests. That was the perception back in the days of the traditional kind of old school foreign policy, I would say, up until the Gulf War. But I would also agree with you, Derek, that those type, those types of traditional kind of uh, allegiances have kind of been frayed in this more tumultuous body politic. So what do you think is their ultimate political goal here if we see that they, there's not much justification economically for making this move? I, I think you're right. I think it's a it's a, a shot across the bow in a sense. Um, I, again, I don't. Uh, I, I'm I'm not entirely convinced that uh, the Saudis care who's in control of Congress, which party is in control of Congress. They may prefer the Republicans, but I don't know that they would uh, base oil policy, which is you know after all fundamental to the kingdom's economy. Uh, I don't know that they would jerk the market around just to just to get a change in uh, power in, in dc uh maybe at the presidential level but I, I i i struggle with that at the congressional level uh but i do think that there is um you know a, a basically a, a warning shot fired here to to the united states to say uh look we don't you know the, we don't need you all as much as we used to uh you know we do a lot more business with china in terms of oil sales uh conceivably you know they could start buying their military equipment from china from china that would be a big uh, expense for them to switch over entirely because so much of their military is uh, armed by the united states and you kind of get locked into a relationship uh, in that sense um but you know it's it, it, you know there's a there's a, a here there are other interests at play that their their relationship uh somewhat of a counterweight to the u.s that their relationship with russia again to uh to avoid any kind of oil price war is more vital in a sense to them uh than their relationship with the united states is at this point um so yeah i, I do think that there there there's some effort to kind of you know wave a flag here at the u.s and say uh our own thing and there's not much that you can do so at best you know the political aspect in terms of them trying to get joe biden back that's perhaps like a bonus on top of a whole host of factors which are driving this policy it's not the driving policy in any sense like mbs might be happy that this hurts joe biden because joe biden was mean about him but this is not the cause of the policy change so i kind of want to flip the script then what about the United States? You know, every so often we hear people both on the right and the left complaining about the American dependence and relationship on Saudi Arabia. I mean, Congress even uh, voted to you know, stop backing the uh, war in Yemen. That was, of course, vetoed by Trump. 
So there is some hostility towards Saudi Arabia in certain quarters of the American political establishment. And not just outlying people, but people who are actually in the establishment who are concerned about how this relationship is developing. What are the possibilities of any kind of even, you know, you know, shift in an American disposition towards Saudi Arabia? Is there going to be an untangling? And some people argue, for example, the Iran nuclear deal and an attempt to open Iran up to Western capitalism, open Iran up to the Western oil markets. That was in part a play to reduce dependency on Saudi Arabia to have a more balanced Gulf policy vis-a-vis uh, these two countries and the oil question and, you know, have another major producer on the world market come online, uh, a producer that has its oil infrastructure hamstrung by uh, sanctions and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> in what sense might we see any kind of shift in American policy? And if not, if we don't see that, are there any preconditions, you would say, any things that would have to change in the Middle East more generally for such a shift to even become a feasible policy, even if it's not feasible at the moment. I mean, I, yeah, I think the the two biggest shifts you could make directly in in terms of the oil market would be, and you could, I mean, you could do this this evening if Joe Biden wanted to, is to lift sanctions on Venezuela and Iran. Uh, these are two major oil producers that have been had their, you know. Oil industry is completely smothered by U.S. sanctions. Um, if you wanted to bring a, a lot of oil back online uh, very quickly uh, and affect the market and also, uh, you know, reduce dependence on Saudi. And when I say dependence, it's not that the United States imports a ton of Saudi oil. We do not. But we are all participating in this global oil market that determines prices and determines things like I think that's I think that's that's an important point to emphasize here because I don't think a lot of people realize that because oil is a globally traded commodity its price is affected by the global supply the United States though produces enough oil for its own internal consumption primarily most of the Saudi oil is going to Asia and Europe Right, right, uh, and and you know you could, um, I, I mean you know Biden, I think he already announced maybe it was today uh, another another dip into the strategic petroleum reserve to to try and stabilize prices, which is a short term measure. It could you know kind of stopgap through the campaign, but um, you know at some point that's going to run out, or you're going to get to a level that that uh, is not viable. It's not viable as a strategy anymore. Um, I, I don't see any indication that the relationship is changing. And I'll tell you the reason why and the, the area to watch is um, military, the military context. And, and this was, you know, as recently as yesterday, I think, in The Washington Post, uh, there was a piece uh, quoting, you know, some unspecified Pentagon folks uh, that basically, you know, despite all this rhetoric and despite the hostility, emanating from Congress and from some potential places in Congress. I mean, Bob Menendez, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, you've had, you know, high-ranking high Democrats in, in other parts of the, the Senate, uh, you know, talking about freezing weapon sales and freezing military co- co- uh, cooperation. Um, there's no indication yet that the Biden administration is even considering pulling the trigger on anything like that. Uh, so I, I don't 
really see the the kind of uh, momentum going in the direction of fundamentally changing the relationship. I know there's the rhetoric out of the White House has been, well, you know, the president wants to be very deliberate about this. He wants to be very uh, methodical in his his decision making. Uh, I think what he wants is to uh, get as much distance from the oil cut as possible and then kind of just leave things unchanged, which has been sort of the story of this administration in the Middle East uh, from the beginning. So you think that Biden basically wants to go back to the status quo ante instead of having to deal with all of these changes on the ground? I, I think it's I think it's not a priority for them. They they've they've made it clear that the region, um, you know, that that changing anything fundamental about the way that the U.S. approaches the Middle East uh, is not something that they're prepared to do. Whether it's getting back into the Iran deal, which again was could have been a day one decision, uh, whether it's changing the relationship with Saudi Arabia or the UAE, um, and, you know, whether it's even you know. Uh, you know, looking at at more peripheral countries that have lousy human rights records and things that you know, with the the administration talking about uh, how we want to put human rights at the center of U.S. foreign policy. You look at Egypt. You know, we're not even really willing to do something uh, to change U.S. aid to Egypt, which is one of the worst performing human rights regimes in the world. Um, you know, I just don't think they they view it as a priority or as something that they're willing to take any risk of. A political cost for making any substantive changes, and that that's especially true now with the war in Ukraine, and and uh, you know, kind of sucking up all the attention, all the oxygen. Well, that's a really fascinating assessment. I really want to ask you about that. Is that do you believe that in the wake of the twenty plus year war on terror, that this is actually an ideological move being made upon foreign policy elites at a high level in the United States to basically pivot away from the Middle East and the Muslim world as a subject matter du jour of focus and concentrate on other areas, maybe pivot uh, to Asia or, or Eurasia or otherwise, because frankly, the, the in light of what has happened in the, in the Middle East, the debacle is just too much to even weather anymore. It's. I, I think there's a definitely a desire to pivot at least in terms of what the discourse is about, uh, what we're talking about, and what we're sort of focusing on. Um, you know, and to some degree that that plays out in in things like the national strategy document that the the administration just released, or in terms of uh, military budgets that seem more focused on kind of heavy weapons platforms of the sort that you might use in a a uh, superpower conflict with a, a, a peer like China. Um, I, I definitely think there's at least a, a desire to shift at that level. I, I don't think disengagement is necessarily where the foreign policy elite is at in terms of the Middle East, but just kind of, um, you know, again, there's there's just a, there doesn't seem to be any appetite for um, the kind of investment of time, energy, political capital, whatever you want to call it, uh, that it would take to change the the uh, I would say completely broken and has been broken for you know 25 30 years now at least uh, if not longer U.S. approach to to the Middle East it's just on autopilot in a sense. Would you say, for example, some of the zeal that we saw at the beginning of the 2000s, the belief that the application of American 
military, diplomatic and political power to the Middle East might bring about a kind of political transformation in the region that these countries will be turned into liberal democracies that also will open up and have lots of opportunities for American business and become stable capitalist uh, uh, countries and useful allies of the United States. That zeal has kind of completely died and is now there's a kind of realism towards the Middle East that as much as, let's say, the liberal and conservative wings of the foreign policy establishment might find certain regimes distasteful uh, or crude or, or, you know, you wouldn't bring them to your family home for dinner. Uh, you, you know, you wouldn't talk about them in polite company. But, you know, this we have to do business with these people. We have to do business with Erdogan. We have to do business with Sisi. We have to do business with the Saudis. And, you know, we'll just do what we do and, you know, we'll return to a kind of more cynical age where you had good guys and bad guys and everyone was really a bad guy. But then there were our bad guys and their bad guys. And so, you know, people can, you know, rightly complain about the regime in Iran and Khamenei and how terrible the Islamic Republic is. But, you know, even MBS, when he first did his debutante ball, was getting glowing Thomas Friedman endorsements uh, and, you know, was being feted by the foreign policy. Reformer with results. Reformer with results, yeah. With the machete results. Yeah, exactly. Machete results. That is results if it's said time. But <laughs> the notion that, you know, we've had the failed interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, nation building was utterly disastrous. The Arab Spring turned out to be a disaster. Interventions in Libya uh, were a failure. The Syrian civil war has been, uh, been a total mess and has helped destabilize Europe. So would you say the American foreign policy establishment in general with its posture to the Middle East is now retreating to a kind of like, if it's not broken, we're not going to like think about it. Do, we're not going to have any grand if it ideas. Is bro it is kind of broken, but we're not going to break it any. We don't want to break and, it any further, maybe. Yeah, yeah like uh, <laughs> would you say there's a kind of a shift in attitudes in that sense? I, I mean, I think it's broader than just the Middle East. I think there's a, a real zeal to to get back to uh, a, a glory akin to the cold war and that's why we've created this um you know don't call it a cold war cold war with china uh, because that's just it, it I, I think for the u.s security establishment it makes more sense um and and this is i mean this is an establishment that that struggled for you know, uh, what's it been, 30 years, uh, give or take, since the end of the, the actual Cold War, to find a purpose, and not just a purpose for, you know, having a, a Pentagon or a Defense Department, but for a purpose for having a Pentagon that has 750 military bases around the world, a purpose for having a Pentagon that gets, uh, you know, $850 billion a year budgets and up, uh, that, you know, $850 billion is just the the sort of top line that everybody knows about. It's it's probably over a trillion when you add everything in. Um, you know, the the zeal for that kind of stuff for the, the you know the big country the big deals with defense contractors to build planes that don't work and aircraft carriers that don't really work. Um, it it all makes more sense in the architecture of a Cold War type rivalry with 
um, a, a, a peer, a perceived peer competitor. And that's where this um, kind of lust for conflict with China, where we, you know, uh, we keep insisting we don't want a conflict. We actually want to work together uh, because of, you know, climate change and pandemics and, and, you know, we have to collaborate. But in the meantime, everything we do speaks to conflict and competition. Um, I, I think that's where it comes from. It just the, the system works better. Uh, under that design than it did in the, uh, you know, unipolar 90s when it was like, you know, maybe we could do uh, humanitarian interventions around the world that didn't really get the kind of traction that they needed. Uh, or the war on terror even, which was, uh, you know, a bit more uh, kind of amenable to that structure, but still, I, I don't think, uh, you know, was was ideal for, for them. The, the notion of uh, this new massive global competition with a, a, another big competitive uh, country is is more appealing, I think. Hold on, Derek, you drop it a major. You, 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 this is a major insinuation you're making here. This is not insignificant. You're, you're, you're basically saying that in the, in the face of the failure of the war on terror and the inability to really recast the scene in the 90s, that the United States on a, on a foreign policy level is aspiring to move back to a Cold War paradigm with China, with communist China as the, the, the fulcrum of the opposition. Is, and that's, that's your position. That's, that's my position. I don't think it's feasible. I don't think the model works because, um, you know, this is something that, that Danny's talked about on, on our show, and I agree with him. Uh, the economies of these two countries are are too intertwined to actually get to uh, the kind of you know first world second world uh, you know everybody kind of masses up behind the lines and in, in, in their own camps structure of the the Cold War in the the you know in the 20th century. Um, but I I think that for purposes of maintaining a trillion plus dollar national security state. Uh, at least creating the impression of uh, a kind of existential conflict with China uh, is is much better for that that system. Uh, it's it's it greases the wheels in a in a much more effective way uh, than anything that we've tried since uh, you know 1990. So it's a kind of it's a simulacra of a Cold War, like as an organizing mechanism of global affairs and the execution of foreign policy even if there isn't a cold war they need a cold war otherwise you know it, it's less about actually having a war with china and i think this is an important point to note like neoliberalism as a as a policy would not have been possible without the massive exploitation of chinese labor chinese industrialization chinese capitalism and the flooding of the american market with cheap consumer goods that could offset the decline of a welfare state. These societies aren't just trading with each other. Their social models depend on each other. The American right. neoliberal model requires a China to provide the cheap uh, consumer goods that Americans like to buy at Walmart, Target, and any number of other uh, uh, shops and stores around the United States of America, because they sure as hell aren't making them in America anymore. But <clears throat> even if that doesn't exist, the 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 interests you're saying within the state 
They don't necessarily really want a war with China, but they need the perception of a war uh, or a potential war with China in order to keep extracting resources from the American treasury to justify their continued existence. So a lot of the hot rhetoric you sometimes hear about China is less for Chinese consumption, but rather for the consumption of American politicians so that when that defense budget increase comes along, they'll vote for that defense budget increase. Whereas uh, in reality, American capital and the American bourgeoisie have a very ambivalent relationship to China because they want to exploit China. And if there's a war, they're not going to be able to have access to that huge billion plus market. Well, uh, I think that's right. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Pat, go ahead. I'm not I'm advocating that the United States wants an actual hot war with China by any stretch of the imagination. What I'm saying is that what what's important about what Derek is saying is that the Ameri America as a foreign policy establishment is looking for a, a, a rebrand, if you will, after I would argue two abysmal failures. One being the war on terror, and one being the the end of the end of history period of the '90s, and the next rebrand is going to be some kind of cold war where I think you know China and maybe China and Russia all put together bring bring back the old the old you know the old battle guys if you will and, and under some kind of guise of a red enemy, and. Uh, I know we'd have a lot of old. We have enough old bad '80s movies to show in re, in re, in reboot to 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 make that happen. But it's it's interesting to think this is the first time I'm thinking about the rebranding effort in those terms. I mean, yeah. I mean, people listen. Rand Corporation issued a, a white paper in 2016 talking about the coming war on China. I mean, what the Rand Corporation issues a white paper about, well, how much you want to pay attention to that about is up to you. But I found it interesting. I was like, well, what is this about? Like, why would you want to issue something like that at that, at that particular time? You know, you have, Biden, you have Trump coming into office. Trump, ex, you know, increases all of this rhetorical flourish about China and business doesn't do anything realistically. But yet Biden doesn't pivot away from the antagonism, antagonism with China as well. So... In my mind, I'm like, maybe it makes sense. It's, I mean, it it leads, it's led under under Biden to me to some in, incoherent places. I mean, this this national strategy, uh, national security strategy document that they just put out was a mess. I mean, it's uh, on the one hand we're uh, we're in competition with China. We we didn't choose it. We don't want it. Uh, but we are unfortunately just inevitably competing with China and there is this kind of structure, but we don't want a cold war and we really want to collaborate with China uh, because of climate change. And I think the, you know, uh, the administration on some level gets that it has to say these things because its base uh, is attuned to the, you know, the notion that uh, on some level is attuned to the notion that the biggest threats we face are things like pandemics and climate change that don't, cut across, you know, don't kind of uh, divide on national lines and don't make for a very good uh, kind of bipolar model of conflict, uh, global conflict, that, that instead uh, cut across every country and, and demand collaboration. Um, but, you know, at the same time, there there is this desire to set China up as the, the boogeyman. 
Um, and yeah, yeah, with Russia now, I mean, which they've sort of played into with uh, by invading Ukraine, Russia is this sort of satellite, um, you know, number two baddie or whatever. Um, and it, it's it, it does lead to some some really, I think, incoherent kind of national um, orientations. Like, are we competing with these guys? Are we trying to work with them? Uh, how are you trying to work with them at the same time that you're, you know, uh, cutting, you're, you're imposing sanctions on the ship industry and, uh, uh, you know, doing things to kind of uh, try to undermine the Chinese economy. But at the same time, you turn around and say, let's all hold hands and, and you know, uh, do something about climate change. It does, just doesn't make sense. And it's, it's um, you know, I think an attempt to kind of appease uh, a lot of different stakeholders who have some varied interests when it comes to this uh, this area. And it's also this sort of typical, uh, you know, one of the things that is a constant in U.S. foreign policy, the inability to uh, see U.S. actions from another perspective and perceive how, uh, you know, the Chinese government might view, um, you know, export controls that, that are, you know, trying to destroy the Chinese uh, chip industry. And, and, you know, they might not, uh, if we impose those things, they might not be willing to turn around and say, okay, well, um, mm -hmm. that's, we don't like that you did that, but let's, you know, work together on these other things anyway. Um, you know, the U S U S foreign policy establishment has always been very bad about, uh, kind of, uh, strategic empathy. It's often, uh, called just sort of the ability to step outside of uh, ourselves and, and see, uh, our actions from a, from another country's perspective. And I think that's part of, part of this as well. And then, I mean, I think to circle back to the point, it reflects in general the kind of schizophrenia amongst the American ruling classes about China, which is both feared and also desired as a you know object of exploitation as well. So they just don't know whether they're coming or going because, you know, all these huge commercial industries are so dependent on them uh, having this ongoing relationship. And so, like, what are you going to do if you suddenly cut off the supply of you know, bicycles to Walmart or whatever it is. And of course, I mean, I would know that the Democrats, are, I'm in Missouri right now, and we have some pathetic Democrat running for the Senate here. What is the advert that they're running on YouTube in Missouri all the time? Uh, that um, uh, Republicans are selling Missouri tariff lands to China. If they wanted to be sell land to communists, they should have become a broker in China. Like Eric Schmidt is a communist. And this is the Democratic Party campaign. And we're seeing we're seeing the political establishments in, you know, among and you know, in the Democratic Party actually engaging a lot in some ways, like even heavier red baiting, even more hostility towards uh the left than um, you're seeing I mean, you see the usual crazy hostility from Republicans, but there's really an uptick in a kind of like anti-communism, the aligning of Russia with socialism and communism in the context of the war. Well, the Democrats are becoming increasingly a more vociferous war party in uh, in the uh, in the Congress and the uh, executive branch. Gee, you've been watching a lot of MSNBC, haven't you? I. I <laughs> This is my morning. Like I watch, I listen to Joe Scarborough and his girlfriend in the morning, and they, you know, have a procession of blathering idiots coming on their show. And it's not just that. I mean, like it's the woke imperialism, isn't it? Like they're doing all the same, like you know, 
protests in Cuba are led by Afro-Latinos and, uh, you know, th this kind of red baiting that's always uh, going on. But it's coming from the progressive side in a very, uh, you know, thick and heavy way. And, you know, we're seeing both Democrats and Republicans emphasizing different enemies, perhaps. I think definitely the Democrats are more hostile towards Russia as a, and the Republicans are more hostile towards China, but they're both kind of both hostile to both powers, at least in their discourse. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Derek? Um, I, I, I think there was a resorting in some ways um, uh, uh, under the Trump administration, and a lot of things became um, more partisan than they had been previously. I think the Saudi relationship is one of those things. Um, you know, really, there was like a visceral reaction among Democrats to um, the relationship that he had with the Saudis. And Russia was a was a huge one, obviously. I mean, the Russia Gate uh, story going all the way back to the, the 2016 campaign. Um, and then, you know, this perception that he was, uh, uh, you know, doing Vladimir Putin's bidding for four years. It really, um, you know, changed the nature of the, the, the debate about these, these issues uh, in DC and on cable news, certainly in, in uh, interesting ways. And I don't know that we've fully figured that all out. I mean, I, I talked to, um, you know, a couple of, I mean, I, you know, I talked to, to, to Danny about this. I was on uh, Bob Wright's, podcast uh, several weeks ago and we talked about this it's um i i think it's it's a it's a shake-up in in foreign policy discourse that's akin to the kind of resorting that happened around the iraq war when you had this uh really uh sudden rise of of uh the sort of restrainer community that that, that gets talked about a lot um that broke down on on partisan lines. I mean, it was you know people who were you know opposed to George W. Bush uh, viewed the war in Iraq as as unjustified, you know, rightly so in my opinion, uh, opposed it, and then kind of were able from there to just decide that um, you know they opposed U.S. foreign policy more broadly and sort of you know uh, you know opposed uh, you know were were supportive of this broader concept of restraint. I think some of that is is being tested now, and that's why the discourse seems to be a little bit in flux, because Trump adopted a lot of the rhetoric of restraint without actually doing any restraint. I mean, he talked about uh, some things that, that you know, you could say were from a restraining perspective. He didn't actually put any of them uh, into practice. And and then, you know, adding to that the, the way that Russia is now perceived in in. Uh, you know, there's a very partisan way and the invasion of Ukraine is being viewed uh, in a partisan way. I think you have some people who didn't like George W. Bush, didn't like the Iraq war, uh, decided that that meant they didn't like interventionist foreign policy in general, rethinking some of I those think, assumptions I think, now. I think this is a really important point. I think uh, during the 2000s, we had the rise of the quote unquote anti-war movement, right? But, you know, something like being anti-war you can read different things into that. And I think a lot of the kind of middle-class left base saw anti-war as a kind of principled argument against war and intervention. Whereas perhaps for some of the foreign policy establishment, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a point of principle per se, but rather that this was the, this was a, a wrong war in terms of 
it was sold to people on a false premise, and B, it was the wrong imperial strategy that America shouldn't be expending those resources. That's certainly what I, I, I see with Obama being able to recuperate that anti-war feeling amongst broad sections of the American pop, uh, population. And what I see today is a similar kind of recuperation where uh, quote-unquote anti-fascism has become the ideological rubric for both the Democratic Party domestically, that you know they're fighting a war against the Republicans who are fascists, and also in terms of framing their foreign policy, that they're fighting an anti-fascist war uh, in in the Ukraine, and that if you if you uh, question the narrative on on Ukraine, question about how far you can go, you're basically you know capitulating to fascism. You're redoing the appeasement of the 1930s as well. And just as anti-war served this role for the Democratic Party in the 2000s in a flagging Republican administration, this rubric of anti-fascism in a deeper way is ingraining itself and drawing together the threads of American uh, domestic politics and American international politics on the democratic side of the American political establishment. Would you say that's kind of a fair assessment or am I being way too conspiratorial about that? Um, no, I, th I think that's, that's very fair. I mean, it's, um, there is definitely a, um, uh, um, I mean, I, I think about this more in terms of the foreign policy angle than the the domestic side, but certainly, I mean, you can see in, uh, you know, the way the Democrats have uh, tried to govern these last couple of years and the way that they have approached the midterms, it's it's very much like, you know, we we let's not talk so much about the issues. I mean, there's a couple that we want to talk about abortion, for example, you know, in the wake of uh, the Supreme Court ruling. But but really, what we want to talk about is democracy is under attack and the Republicans are you know undermining democracy, and that's the issue, the great issue of our time. Uh, the the Biden administration clearly seems to view the war in Ukraine as as a similar kind of sorting mechanism. Uh, it is they they view it as the, you know, like the you know the next the new great conflict of our time, and you're either on the right side or the wrong side. And if you're on the wrong side, well then that's uh, you know you're gonna you're gonna at least face some rhetorical anger from the U.S. if not any kind of substantive punishment. But there's definitely uh, a move, a movement to demand that uh, countries, even countries that have nothing to do with Russia or Ukraine, have, couldn't have less to do with, uh, or countries whose only interaction with, uh, you know, it's made it impossible to import food and support, you know, kind of feed their populations. Uh, all these countries are expected to take a side. You have to pick a side. And that's why you, you get a lot of a kind of anguished rhetoric about what you know what's uh you know countries in Africa why aren't they coming you know why aren't they seeing that uh what Russia's done is evil and why don't they support the 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 sanctions regime and what the US is trying to do what the West is trying to do um and it's it's you know again it's it's partly an inability to just kind of step back and say you know what are these other countries what what interest do they have in taking sides in this conflict what what would be the point of that for for them um you know all they they you know again for, for a lot of them the only interaction they really have with this with that war is that that they were dependent on grain shipments uh from ukraine and russia and now those grain shipments have been severely impeded um you know but it's it's just sort of a, a 
I don't know. It's it's it is a weird kind of uh, they view it as a sort of um, great divide in in geopolitics, and and everybody's expected to be on one side of it or the other. Uh, even countries that that really don't seem to have much of a a, a rooting interest in that sense. You know, it's it's absolutely absurd the way the liberal, I mean, liberals are going to liberal. They they're going to reduce everything to a very very kind of like you know ridiculous kind of Manichaean kind of good bad dichotomy in order to facilitate them you know getting their 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 contingency into buying into their principles on a, on an unprincipled basis. So it's not surprising that they're painting this with this broad brush to deny any kind of nuance from the consciousness of their of their. Uh, their supporters and it just makes the conversation and the ability to politically educate people even harder and even worse that's uh i think that's a really important point i mean to to kind of thread back to my point about anti-fascism putin is really the figure that threads the domestic and the foreign policy he's the big foreign policy bad guy but also he's like the person behind trumpism and the far right and you know everybody's heard of alexander dugan and, and you know there's some validity to the fact that the Russians attempt to Amer uh, influence American pop uh, public opinion, everybody does it. You just open up a TV channel and try to influence uh, public opinion in the United States. But I think the sorting mechanism is extremely important because uh, the mainstream narrative has, you know, pitched this as a moral battle. And of course, the Ukrainians are far more sympathetic. And it's not just about, oh, they're white people. That's why they're sympathetic. Like people didn't give a crap about the Yugoslavians that they were all white. They're sympathetic because the Russians invaded their country. And you could talk about like Maidan and America did this and America did that. But the end of the day is Vladimir Putin escalated the conflict to a new level of violence and, and conflict. And people see that and they're like, oh, this is like a this is like a bad invasion of a country. Countries should have their own freedom to do what they want internally. Bloody, bloody, blah. So they can, you know, the the moral argument on the face of it is like really like a a plausible, visceral, emotional one. A big country invaded a little country, and you know, you could talk about the history. And I think the problem with the debate uh, is it becomes uh, you you either have this, and we see this on the left, like the U Ukraine war has been a really interesting sorting mechanism. Uh, for the kind of Bernie Sanders base, the journalists, the activists, where, you know, the Ukraine war sorted between those who, you know, in the wake of Bernie Sanders' defeat, well, this, you know, they rallied behind Ukraine. They had all the Ukraine flags. They were in favor of arming Ukraine. And then you had a kind of reaction to this, which is not really a transcending or deeper understanding of the principle it just becomes an inversion so whatever the liberal establishment say is true you believe the opposite so if the americans are doing propaganda you don't believe anything americans say but you believe everything that the russians say or you take russian sources as being you know more honest than american sources when in reality it's like what's the point of anyone having a side in this conflict you know like we should just want it to end like we don't want i mean we're heading towards i mean i don't think we're going to have a nuclear war but you know this is having all kinds of unfortunate knock-on effects and you know moralizing this conflict is not going to resolve the conflict you have to make peace with your enemies you don't make peace with your friends and somehow the best outcome would seem to be peace with ukraine what that peace looks like 
I don't really know. But, you know, there is a really hardening attempt by liberals and some elements of the left to frame this as a kind of moral conflict, an anti-fascist conflict, and any sort of discussion of negotiation. They hate Putin and see Putin as being the ideological progenitor of the reactionary right in Europe and the West. And if they can stomp him out like a cockroach, you don't have to worry about the right wing. Yeah, I think that's, I certainly think that's. And then on the flip side, you just have a whole bunch of a, a smaller group of people who call themselves anti-imperialists who just invert the moral universe, turn it on its head, but still have that same moral universe. There's like, so you have people like, well, Putin's actually the good guy. Russia you know, Russia had to do this because America took all these actions. It's like, well, even if Russia was worried, like, why do I care what the Russian state is scared of? Everybody's scared of something. You know, I'm sure Americans were all scared of like, I'm sure there were tons of people in the American establishment who were legitimately fearing in their emotional self that terrorism was going to affect them after 9-11. That doesn't justify being scared or being concerned. Doesn't justify, you know, massive escalations. Yeah, massive escalations. It's like, well, you know, feelings are feelings. I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry Russia feels bad that, you know, things happened in Ukraine, but that doesn't justify an escalation. But like on the flip side, an unending conflict, it, where does it end? You know, are you, are, you know, Russia is a nuclear armed power. Do we really want to play? Do we really want to escalate to an, a, a, an exceptional extent that? Well, the question, I mean, listen, man, all of this depends on what you believe the role of nato is in this endeavor there are some people who are like listen these nato bastards have been aggravating this situation by expanding into you know former russian territory and they put put they pushed russians to a position where they were like if the u.s was in a similar situation they would do the exact goddamn same same thing and my position is that and this is why my i've always made it clear what that distinguishes my i don't support nato expansionism anywhere nato shouldn't even exist anymore but i also think that the real politic of the russians attacking ukraine in this particular moment was absolutely absurd because look at the condition of where the world was you know but right after covid right after three years of people being locked down the world is miserable and you're going to take this opportunity to go into a global conflagration over ukraine come on man it didn't strike me as a sound strategic move to be pushing to this to this degree, and I thought that the existential NATO threat could have been diverted in other ways. That was not something that could have been that could not have been neutralized. I I think there were definitely opportunities missed to forestall this war. I I, I don't know that those opportunities were in January or February of this year, but but. Going back to 2014, over the past eight years, there were chances to create a set of conditions in Ukraine that would have, uh, uh, you know, assuaged I think uh, Russian concerns before things got uh, to where they are now. Um, I, I I agree, Pascal, with you completely. NATO sh- should not exist. I mean, it just shouldn't exist. Uh, it shouldn't even be an issue uh, at this point. Uh, but NATO, again, I mean, you know, like U.S. foreign policy. Uh, NATO is an organization that has been in search of a mission for the last 30 years or 32 years, uh, and they're just going to keep trying on different hats until they find one that fits. Um, Gene, I, I also agree with with you. The the moralizing this conflict to me is is just so unfortunate. Uh, I mean, it it 
leaving aside the effect it has on sort of making talking about this in a in a forum you know whether it's on social media or you know wherever uh just you know completely pointless uh because you're either uh you know going to be called a, a bad guy for supporting russia or a bad guy for supporting uh ukraine or whatever um it, you know when you cast a, a conflict like this in those terms it closes off the space for negotiation i mean how's the ukrainian government supposed to negotiate with russia when vladimir putin is the font of all evil how is russia supposed to negotiate with ukraine when ukraine is uh you every, know apparently full of nazis and and everything that happens in ukraine is uh an existential threat to russia when you cast in these maximalist moralist terms it, it prevents negotiating an end to the conflict which as you said gene is is what everybody should be trying to get to is an end to the conflict what that looks like you know that's for the the combatants to decide uh i suppose but um you know what what everybody should be hoping for is that it it ends in some fashion no doubt yeah i mean, I mean that yeah it's 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 a real tragedy and i just want to you know address something you know we always look at this military endeavor as being a function of russian foreign policy but foreign policy and domestic foreign policy are interconnected to each other and you know one of the characteristics of you know emerging uh, economies places like russia places like turkey you know their military expansion overseas is often not only related to their foreign policy concerns but related to dynamics within their own country instability within their own country the search for new markets for their like growing capitalist classes you know so you know when we look at the causes of these uh, wars you know people can repeat at me like america has 800 military bases and nato did this it's like that's all great but you know these conflicts are all over determined by a host of factors and reducing it to a kind of moral fight whether you're like uh russia is a progressive power fighting against american imperialism or whether you're saying that you know we're engaged in a fight against the new fascism that does not elucidate anything and that does not get anyone closer to a solution and like frankly because the left is so far from power we don't need to take a side in this right you know we're so far from power it's like we can like say like a plague on all this war this war is horrible and it's costing humans uh, lives there's like horrible people on both sides of the conflict russia attacked obviously not without i mean like when you're at school when i was at school in england and i was doing history we learned that like one of the reasons hitler engaged in imperialism was because they were treated so badly at the treaties of versailles does that mean my history teacher was was a nazi sympathizer because they were talking about you know the harsh treatment meted out in on germany in the treaty of versailles at the end of the first world war no but it's like provides context right so you know people are really silly about this and it's really unfortunate um that a rational discussion of like how to get the hell out of a very brutal conflict cannot be engaged in but i realize we're going over time derek we're stealing your time so <laughs> i want to thank you for coming on uh sure, is there anything you me. anything you want to plug um, um our... well people People can check out American Prestige. That's uh, the show I host with Danny Bessner, uh, AmericanPrestigePod.com, or you know wherever you get your podcasts. 
Uh, and uh, foreign exchanges uh, is at fx.substack.com. That's my newsletter. Um, and uh, yeah, those, those, uh, that's it. Hopefully, I, I we'll be getting anything else going on. Hopefully, we'll be getting uh, some of the uh, some of the people from foreign policy exchanges on the show because there's some really great articles in there. If you have not subscribed to it, uh, make sure you subscribe to foreign policy exchanges. Pascal, anything to plug? Anything we should be aware of? Anything I'm forgetting? Uh, don't forget that Jason is going to be on Majority Report on Friday, as a matter of fact. And uh, don't forget we're going to have the, uh, the you know the live show. It's going to be on October 23rd, I believe. Right. Yeah, uh, October Sunday, October the 23rd at the Telegram Ballroom in LA. You can buy tickets at events. You can even walk up and buy a ticket on the day. Danny will be there on the panel of doom. He'll be with, uh, I think he's with Deep State Cuba, and he's also with C. Derek Vaughn, who are probably the two other gloomiest people in the universe. Although Danny maintains a chipper, stiff upper lip while he's giving you the doom. He yeah, he has a he has a good attitude about it all, even if it's, uh, he's the message, winning at the life. content is not great. Yeah, the content's not there, but he's winning at life. So, you know, he can be jolly about it. But, yeah, so links to all that are in the um, uh, are in the description. You can get check the tickets out there, information on there. People, calm down on Twitter, you know. No need to be mean about guests at the at the show. It's a show. It's for entertainment. This is Revolution. is about education and entertainment. We do not pretend we are cyber Leninists and we're going to lead you to proletarian revolution. So don't get mad about everything. Everybody just chill out. And uh, with that said, consider buying some of our merch. There we go. Look at that. Look at us. Look at us recuperating for capitalism pictures of Marx and Lenin. We're, do, we're doing it like you see. We get the Afro-pessimism teacher. So consider buying some merch because, you know, people have people, you know, doing this stuff costs money. People have to live. And with that, Pascal, would you like to say the magic words? Not the we light ones. We are out.